I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to WXAZ, home of the hits. Don't let anyone tell you we don't love you because you know we do. We'll be back with some more music after these messages. Hello, darling. You know, I was just thinking, it's so, so wonderful that your beloved grandmother left us this beautiful piano in her legal will. Yes, my wife, Karen. Why, I can't wait for our child or children to take piano lessons, as I did in my youth. My youth. Oh, God, it's a nightmare. Please stop. But darling, I didn't do anything. Oh no, it's playing by itself. Not another haunted piano. Has this ever happened to you? Haunted pianos are a problem that gets statistically worse every single year, dating all the way back to 1898. Today, pianos are produced in greater numbers than ever before. And as we learned in economics class, more pianos means more haunted pianos. Now, most people respond to news of a ghost living inside of their piano rashly, doing any number of harmful things to their piano, such as attempting to exercise it, which does not work, by the way, or even by smashing it with a hammer or leaving it on the side of the road. Talk about extremes. That's why I started the H.H. Heffler Haunted Piano Tunings business 10 years ago with my wife, Sandra. Say hi to the folks, Sandra. Hello, everyone. See, at H.H. Heffler's, we leave the ordinary piano tunings to the ordinary piano tuners. 
bring a little something special to the table, and we only tune haunted pianos. Using a special combination of tools, natural skill, and book learning, our piano tuners are trained to create an atmospheric relationship for you and your parasitic ghost entity so that conflicts can be avoided, and most importantly, you can keep your piano. Read the Yelp reviews. It really does work. And Sandra is no stranger to a haunted piano, so you'd better take her word for it. Say, that piano sounds great. Is that you, my Karen? No, my beloved husband, Pietro. That was the ghost that lives in the piano. It turns out he was a highly sought-after pianist in his day. (laughs) Well, well. Let me pull up a chair. He's really not half bad. Thanks, HHFlers. You really saved us a lot of headaches. That's HHFlers Haunted Piano Tune in serving Pinewood, Pencilton, Monte Clifton, Tacoma, and Soda Clear Bridges and Watertown. Mention this commercial and get 10% off. Good pal to Bona, I see. I hope you enjoyed the cold open, HHFler's Haunted Piano Tunings, written by Sarah Century and performed by Sarah Century, Tanner Rush, and S.E. Fleenor. You know, relationships, they're really quite hard, aren't they? I know you haven't always been lucky in love. And for me, ha, the less said, the better. That reminds me of tonight's story, which is right from a recent collection by Weird Punk Books called A Small Light and Other Stories, written by Sarah Century. I've been enjoying it, and you can pick it up from the Weird Punk site, or I suppose other places too. Long have I had a fondness for Weird Punks, and this Sarah Century sounds like she fits the bill. Her stories appear to be about depressed lesbians being kind of mean to each other, and frankly, that's just my cup of tea. 
So buckle up, because this is The Hollow Bones, written and performed by Sarah Century. The first time I went to the house with all the great gray windows facing the sea, I commented on its loveliness. Wispy clouds laced themselves throughout the moody sky and the brackish ocean water sparkled in the muted light. Birds dotted the shoreline, small silhouettes against the horizon. Difficult to tell where the house ended and the ground beneath it began. Just another rock poking up out of the sea, made out of brick and concrete and glass. I wanted to wait outside, but Sin insisted that it would be a while and urged me to come in with her. I stared at our distorted reflections in the windows while we talked, but I did not look at her directly. She could always convince me, but it's hard to say in hindsight if that was because she was exceptionally persuasive or if I was just really bad at drawing boundaries. I suppose it doesn't matter now. Together we got out of the car. It's nice. I strained to speak loud enough to be heard over the wind and sea. Wait until you see inside. I went to respond, but mist filled my eyes and my mouth and my voice trailed away. Sin took my hand in hers and pulled it into her pocket, leading me up the walkway to the front door. I pulled back, always more worried than her, about what people might think. It seems foolish now, but back then I was only out to a few friends. No one else. Sin had always been out as long as I'd known her. I used to think it was because she had less to lose than I did, but now after... Everything that happened, I think she just thought it was worth the risk. Sin struggled to find the phone number she'd been given while I hopped up and down trying to stay warm in the harsh wind. The door swung open just as she pushed the key into the lock, and we were greeted by Susan Emery, the lady of the house. She greeted us pleasantly and ushered us in. Of course, Sin had already told me all about Susan. She was in her late 40s with dark hair and blue eyes, and she wore a simple, vertically striped black and white dress. A crystal bird on a silver chain rested on her collar, a piece of jewelry that Sin absolutely adored. Her eyes kept falling back on it as we talked. I was distracted and couldn't keep my eyes off of the birds. (sighs) The birds. Once she walked past the small entryway, the birds were everywhere. Sin had been hired to help care and clean for them a few weeks before. Susan and her husband Mark's relationship had grown strained in their attempts to stay on top of the dozens and dozens of exotic birds that they had purchased together over the last decade of their marriage. From what Sin had told me, they wanted to focus more on their personal life, the art gallery that they owned together, and maybe even plan a vacation. They had been tending to the menagerie of macaws and cockatiels and parakeets and more together for a long time. And even with so much constant interaction, they had lost touch with each other. 
According to the ad for the job, the couple owned over a hundred birds. And Susan had bragged that they had nearly $500,000 invested in them. Lots of famous people have bird collections, Senate explained to me after taking the job. They're like pets, I guess. But it's weird, don't you think? Keeping birds? They didn't seem much like pets to me. They were loud and apprehensive and nervously shifting from one foot to the other and calling sharply to one another or perhaps to us. The whole time we were there, Susan didn't even seem to notice them. But they certainly noticed her. Their interactions all centered around her in some way. And they would look at her when she spoke or when she made any kind of gesture with her hands. I almost immediately stopped listening to Sen and Susan's small talk, distracted by the birds and their strange response to their keeper. There were just so many of them. I had never seen that many in the same place before, not even in a zoo. Some in cages, some out. All different colors and sizes. I couldn't stop thinking about the malice and the act of placing another living thing in a cage, but I wondered if we didn't all do that, at least metaphorically. I stared into the eyes of the birds and tried to imagine what I looked like to them. What a strange, terrible sort of life with a small chain around your foot binding you to the ground. Maybe they thought the same of us, sitting on an uncomfortable couch and enduring meaningless conversations. Their eyes glistened. Sweetie? Sin's voice broke through my reverie. Susan asked you if you wanted a drink. No, uh, sorry. No, thank you. No? Are you sure? Susan asked, flashing a strange smile. We've got so much booze left over from our New Year's Eve party, we might not ever get rid of it all. You might take some with you, at least? I don't really drink, I said. I do. I'd love a drink, Sin smiled. Susan noticed that I'd left a few damp footprints by the door, which she mentioned casually and then became anxious and stood to go clean them. I'm a bit of a neat freak, she explained, rapidly leaving the room to tend to the mess. I said nothing, taking a long, even sip from my water bottle. Sin looked at me and smiled. What? I whispered. She kissed me and we got swept away for a moment until Susan returned, coughing nervously. We apologized, and she laughed, but the air in the house had seemed to change somehow. I don't think Sin noticed, but maybe she did. It was hard to tell how much she picked up on because she was good at acting unfazed. She always let things roll off of her back, but when we were alone together, her feelings of resentment and pain would catch up with her. Nobody but me saw the side of her that stayed in bed for days at a time, who sometimes looked at kitchen utensils she'd used a million times like they were impossibly complicated pieces of machinery, or that had to walk her through basic tasks when she became overwhelmed. That's why, when I say I knew her better than anyone, I have reason to believe that that's true. I saw a side of her that other people didn't see, and... Sometimes that was a good thing, and sometimes it was hard. 
In my own thoughts, I was far from convinced that caring for the birds would be a good long-term job, even if it did pay exceptionally well. But it was obvious that Sen was already fascinated by the strange house, Susan, the mysterious necklace. I suppose they do take some getting used to, Susan said of the birds, noticing how distracted I had become. Haven't you ever had a pet canary or anything? She's never had a pet, Sin said, taking a drink of her beer and gently pushing a hand against my arm. Not even a pup. Not even a dog? Susan asked, mock horrified. Well, I don't like dogs much either, I suppose. They're awfully loud, aren't they? And kind of, you know, uh, they smell terrible. But not even a hamster? Or a fish? No, I tried to get her to let me adopt a kitten I found once, but it, um, it wasn't to be, I guess. First of all, that kitten had rabies. <gasps> oh my god, she lies like this! About a kitten! Can you imagine? A sweet, innocent, diseased, mangy, flea-ridden, bad attitude. Anyway, it's an ongoing conversation, as you can see, Sin explained. I haven't given up hope, but... It'll take a lot more convincing. Maybe we'll just have to wait for the right pet. Maybe it'll be a bird. Susan was smiling. Well, it's a lot of work, to be honest. Taking care of a living thing is always... a lot. It's not for everyone. Sin's smile changed. She squeezed my arm. She takes care of me, she said. And Susan took the hint and changed the subject. We spent most of the rest of the visit talking about art. The next time I saw the house, months had passed. Sin had been working there regularly, even covering some shifts for the other caretakers. We had made plans to take the weekend off together, so I came in with her that Friday to help her get through it as quickly as possible. Susan's husband, Mark, was the one who greeted us that day. He finally came down the stairs long after we'd already gotten started. Our clothes were dirty and our hair was disheveled. He hugged us both, though it was the first time I'd met him. The birds were wide-eyed and nervous, a mirror of my own discomfort. Mark was handsome and gregarious, much the same as Susan. He wore a white suit with a black belt and black shoes. A reddish tint around his brown eyes was the only sign of anything amiss. I dismissed his constant sniffling as allergies, though later I realized that he did a lot of cocaine. I should have known, but I was raised by devout Christians and made it to age 23 before I'd even tried alcohol, so I was always a bit naive. Mark brought us drinks and told us a few inconsequential stories. Eventually, I started to fidget, wondering how long I would have to sit politely in dirty clothes while this guy took up our afternoon with small talk. He finally had to get back to work, so he said goodbye and left the room. Only a couple minutes later, I heard a loud crack. Sin and I ran into the next room. It took a few seconds to register, but there was a window smashed into pieces. Oh, where's Mark? We should let him know. Outside, there was the sound of a car starting. I walked to the window to see Mark backing out of the driveway. Instinct held me back. Instead of chasing after him, I squinted and tried to get a better look. Oh, did we miss him? I'd better text Susan. No. No, don't. Sin, his hand. It was bloody. 
I think he did this. What? No, come on. I'm sure he didn't. We both walked over to the window as Sin tried to assure me. On the broken glass, there was a splash of blood. I pointed at it and didn't say anything. Sin's sentence trailed off. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. After that, I didn't want Sin to go back there at all. We argued about it a few times until she accused me of trying to hold my financial stability over her head and keep her dependent on me, which made me incredibly angry. I shelved the conversation forever. Do what you want, I said, and didn't talk about it anymore after that. She seemed compelled to continue working for them regardless of what her instincts were telling her, and I decided then and there that it wasn't worth the struggle. I stubbornly avoided the subject for weeks. But the birds haunted my dreams. I wasn't upset that Sin had started an affair with Susan. It took me a while to even realize that she had. We'd both slept with other people before, and it always went much the same, with one of us showing up in tears to apologize and swear it would never happen again. Once, years before, I'd even broken up with her for real when a guy named Steve Carroll my mother had been trying to match me up with since sixth grade proposed to me. Sin had been heartbroken, but that wasn't why I called the engagement off. I just realized that it wouldn't work. I couldn't make it work. When I called her, she'd come back. She always came back. It was part of our cycle, but this was different. It slowly became obvious that the relationship between Mark and Susan was wearing on them all. Sin seemed more and more fragile. I have had time to consider how my negligence was its own form of cruelty. In the beginning, there was something about the whole situation that I hoped could be therapeutic for her. I thought she was too needy, too emotional, and maybe this could help her form meaningful bonds outside of our relationship. 
I didn't realize how much that instability was her responding to my calculated indifference. I didn't realize then how much her pain was caused by me. I've wondered for a long time why I didn't try to stop her. I'm sure that I could have ended it. The opportunity presented itself again and again, but rather than viewing Sin's interest in this strange couple as a threat, I just took it as a vacation, during which time I felt blessed to stare at the cracks in the ceiling and think of nothing at all. I thought I finally might get a short break from all the arguments if Sin was being swept away in an illicit affair. Of course, it seems callous now, but it's hard to see yourself in the moment sometimes. In my own mind, I was just weary of our repetitions. It didn't even occur to me that what was happening was something new. One morning, Sen came home, shaken and confused. She could barely speak. I pulled her into bed with me, and I wrote off the idea of being able to get any work done. She was breathing heavily, and she was cold and wet, and she smelled of the sea. I just held her for a long time and waited for her to tell me what had happened. She would start to sit up every now and again, and I would draw her back down, pulling the blanket back over us. I didn't ask her what was wrong. I'd known her long enough to know that she would be silent. She might sleep for a while, and then she would talk. Even after so long, people can surprise you. She spoke up right as I was writing off any hope of conversation. There's something wrong with them. Mark and Susan, there's something really wrong with them, you know? I sat up, examining her for the first time since she'd gotten home. Did they hurt you? Are you okay? It's, it's not like that. I mean, deeply, seriously wrong. The stuff with the birds, it's, it's hard to explain, but they... Susan, she uses the necklace to keep them. And I think she's keeping me the same way. I think that she can make people stay. The birds want me there. I don't know how to say it other than that. The birds want me. Maybe you should think about quitting, I said abruptly, angrier than I intended to be. She shook her head, trying to respond, but finding herself unable to, and she cried. I apologized, and she absolved me, and we folded into each other like we'd done so many times. That was the last time we did, though. It was the last time things were the same for us. She never tried to open up to me again after that. The next time I held her, she'd become something different entirely. I tried to convince her not to go back, but by then, she had opened a box she couldn't close. I only saw Mark and Susan one more time. Well, alive. When I pulled up to drop Sin off, they were standing in the window in the middle of an argument. When they realized we had arrived, they both turned and stared through the foggy glass, not moving. It was immediately off-putting, even if I hadn't already been skeptical about leaving Sin there. Are you going to... I began, but Sin had already gotten out of the car and the slam of the door cut me short. 
I sat there stunned and eventually let my anger make the choice to back out of the driveway and leave. There are ways in which we fail the ones we love. Little ways, small moments where we forget them in our hearts. I, f I failed sin. I thought of her as a burden. She was crying out for help and I wasn't listening. There are people that have condemned her for what she became, but not me. I was there. I witnessed firsthand every step as it led to the next, some kind of gravitational life trajectory that we each have that drags us through the moments not of our making and ends each time in death. There are monsters in this story, but sin isn't one of them. I took the day off, reading quietly, relaxing. When it was time to go pick Sin up, I procrastinated. I thought I just didn't want to see her so soon after our argument that morning, but looking back, I knew something was wrong that I didn't want to confront. It had been in the way that she had held on to me before she'd left the previous morning, and how she'd knelt in front of me and kissed my fingers the night before. We weren't having sex during this time. I think we both intrinsically knew it wouldn't feel right. But we were still sleeping in the same bed. She looked tearfully in my eyes and made me promise that I wouldn't leave her. Again and again, I would say everything she wanted to hear and I'd add my own flourishes and in those moments I believed every word. I believed that I could be there for her. I believed that was enough. I would not have guessed how our story together would end. I never could have known that night years before when she had climbed into my bed for the first time, making nervous jokes and touching me too gently, as if she were afraid I would shatter or draw back or make her leave. I never could have known then that we would become something so different by the end of it all. While I was trapped in my own existential thought exercises, she was quietly learning new, horrifying things. Things that I will never have to know of, beyond what fragments of them I saw in her eyes. From the moment I'd gotten into my car and began the half-hour drive up the coastline, I was increasingly anxious. I couldn't handle listening to music, and when I put on a podcast, the words jumbled together until I became irate and switched the radio off. Instead, I listened to the soft hiss of cold air coming through the crack between the window and the door, and I worried. I pulled slowly into the driveway as the sun finally vanished behind the clouds. Both the sky and I equally hesitant to let go of the daylight. I didn't want the sun to go, and it didn't want to leave me. I could see the blood immediately, of course. It was all over the windows. I'm sure you've seen the photos. Blood splattering out in the shape of a great bird. The second the car stopped, I jumped out and ran to the door. Whoever was inside would already know I was there from my headlights, so there was no sneaking up. I wasn't thinking clearly. 
I pulled the door open and staggered past the awning. Inside. The birds, no longer bound to their posts, hopped and fluttered outside. Mark was laying face down on the floor, dead from a gunshot wound to the head. Susan was in the next room, not visible to me except for her hand, which was stretching towards the crystal necklace. Though I might struggle to explain exactly why I did it, I instinctively kicked the necklace away from her, an act that might seem cruel, but which I still can't bring myself to regret. Sin's words about Susan and the crystal had seeped into me so that when I saw her grasping for it, my only response was to ensure that she would never touch it again. Without stopping for them, I ran around the house in search of Sin, but I couldn't find her. By the time I returned, Susan's hand had gone limp, and the pendant lay in a pool of blood, chain broken, black eyes glinting. I called 911, but Sin wasn't found until three days later. Hiding in a small enclave on the beach, cold and naked, surrounded by seagulls. She might have been a suspect, but it was immediately obvious under investigation that Susan had shot Mark and then somehow had been pecked to death. They were both covered with claw and bite marks, but not by any of the birds they owned. Besides that, no one could quite explain Sin's presence, nor the way that she'd responded to this tragedy by freeing every bird in the house and roaming the beach like a goddamn wraith for three nights straight. Sin came home to me wrapped in a blanket, completely unresponsive and posing more questions than she could answer. The police said that she'd been the same at the station. No matter how often I asked, she would never tell me what had happened. I learned to let it go. Sin was always a stranger after that. Months passed. We still shared an apartment, but slept in separate rooms. It sounds heartless, but I couldn't sleep in the same bed, knowing that she might start weeping, or worse, that I would wake up with her quietly sitting next to me and know that she hadn't slept. Do you know what you would do if I told you what really happened? Sen asked one night after I had started a half-hearted argument just to get an emotional response from her after weeks of moody silence. If I told you the things that Susan told me, if you had seen, I sat up. Please don't go through this alone. Let me go through it with you. Please don't lock me out. Knowing it was too late, even as I said it, she smiled weakly and touched my face. I tried to get her to open up to me, but she fell asleep while I was talking and my anger dissolved into despair. I started seeing a woman named Jessica, which I reasoned was because I couldn't handle Sin's despair. I suppose now I can admit that I was trying to hurt her enough that she would respond to me again. At any rate, Jessica stopped staying over early on. She complained that Sin sometimes lingered in the doorway while we slept. The last time she stayed through the night, we had woken up to Sin sobbing, which turned into a full night of me holding her and attempting to calm her while 
Jessica angrily waited for the dawn to come. The moment the sun appeared, she left, and I let Sin fall asleep with her head over my heart like she had done so many times before. After that, when Jessica and I spent the night together, it was in the guest bedroom of the home she shared with her husband. I believe it caused some tension between them, but I was completely checked out. I'm sure she didn't deserve that, but in the end, there was no need for anyone to feel badly. I knew this arrangement couldn't last, with Sin and I giving each other less and less to hold on to. I'd be gone before spring. One way or another, I'd be gone. When Sin didn't come home for almost four days, I knew I'd have to go find her. But I put it off. It was the final nail in the coffin that I couldn't bear to drive in. The last time I'd seen her, she'd acted like her old self, which should have made me feel relieved, but our laughter was too knowing, role-playing as our past selves, devoid of the same warmth that had once been there. A strange, lifeless caricature, with raw sorrow bursting out from under its surface. I held on to her so tightly, but she may as well have been on another planet. As my eyes began to close, I noticed something on her chest. A sparkling black eye. The necklace. I cried out without words, raw anger erupting from my throat. I snapped at her and tried to pull it from around her neck. For the first time in months, she argued with me, telling me that it was none of my business and angry that I had only just noticed it when she claimed to have been wearing it for days. I was sure she hadn't been. I was sure Susan had been buried in it. I had seen it around her neck at the funeral. She stormed out and called a car, but I was so infuriated and exhausted with it all that I didn't follow her. I woke up with a terrible migraine. Sin hadn't come home, and I had to accept that I knew deep down where she was. I waited a few more nights before I finally picked up the keys off the counter and walked out to the car. I sat down at the steering wheel and wanted to weep for how much I missed the old son, who was stronger than me in ways that I was just then realizing. The gratingly slow agony of watching her pull away from me over months all caught up to me in that moment. Everything seemed so pointless. Even going to discover the horror that I knew was awaiting me seemed like nothing more than the next logical step in the excruciatingly long deconstruction of the life that we had built together. The waves were slowly eating away at the last traces of the beach, and only the smallest sliver of sunlight flashed along the horizon, covered in clouds. However far away the sun is, felt much further that day, as if once it set, it might never return. I stared at the sky for a long time as the light vanished away, leaving only the silhouette of a dark house. Sin was inside. 
That much was immediately obvious. She stood in front of the window, nothing more than a shadow, but clearly sun. She sat down on the floor in the empty house, not paying attention to me at all. She was speaking or chanting and passionately hitting her palms against the floor for emphasis. I'm sure she knew I was there, but it didn't matter to her. I heard the cries of the birds, instinctively locking the car doors and watching with absolute awe as dozens, then hundreds, then thousands of shrieking birds covered the property. Birds of all kinds, crowding each other and falling off the sides, lining up through the yard, out to the sea, crying out and shuffling around, but not causing harm. They overwhelmed my surroundings in less than half an hour while I sat perfectly still and watched them. Sin was yelling something, but it soon became lost in their cacophony. She stood again and opened the doors wide and let them inside. I would hear stories later. Even as I had left every part of my old life behind, people who didn't know my connection to the tale would tell me of the shocking story of the girl in the house with the hollow bones. How she had made some kind of art exhibit from deceased bird bodies that she'd found. How they'd found a neighbor on the beach pecked to death by dozens of crows and gulls, and how his house had caught fire in the middle of the night. She never explained any of these things, and eventually vanished from her cell while awaiting trial, while flocks of birds fluttered and squawked outside. She was there one moment, and the next, both she and the birds were gone. That was 20 years ago, and she's never been heard from since. Yet there have been sightings. Sightings of a woman surrounded by birds and bodies found along the coastline. Mysteries that have gone unexplained. And I'm afraid I won't be the one to explain them. I never appear in the stories that they tell about her. I think making the note that she had a long-term girlfriend the whole time would kind of throw off the narrative of her as some kind of vengeful bird witch, wouldn't it? Urban legends don't have girlfriends, do they? None that I know of, anyway. I'd love to say that two decades later, I have the hindsight to understand what Sin was going through. But I only feel further away from her than ever. Now, she is the subject of articles and podcast episodes and news stories. She even has her own Wikipedia entry, but it's full of errors. Errors that I do not bother to correct. The story I will never tell is how she wrote me from prison. Long, rambling letters, talking about magic and nature and death. Letters that I read over and over, even today. The story I will never tell is when I went to see her in jail and how I broke into immediate ragged sobs, wanting so desperately to go to her. The story I will never tell is the night when I awoke and she was standing on the other side of our bedroom window, covered in rain and mud, wide-eyed, begging to be let in until the police came and took her back to jail. No one knew how she'd escaped. She told me she could escape anytime she wanted. 
The story I will never tell is how the birds follow me to this day in large, squawking, screaming flocks, covering my house with their bodies, eliciting comments from the neighborhood committee, an inexplicable quirky thing that they joke about at brunch. I don't talk about the windows I've replaced, the birds I've found squirming in through the walls, the dead bodies I've gotten so used to cleaning up out of my yard that they barely garner a response from me at all, never attacking me, always watching me always trying to get closer to me. The story I will never tell is how today I walked outside and found a pendant in the shape of a bird lying on my doorstep, how I hung it around my neck without a second thought, and how the bird screamed as I closed the door behind me. Because if I told these stories, then it wouldn't surprise anyone to know that I still hear Sen at my window sometimes, scratching at the pane just like a bird. Just a bird that I let inside, and together we'd locked away the parts of her that scared us. She'd been in a cage that I'd helped to build, and now she's free. The door swung open, and I could never close it again. What I never wanted to admit is how truly, painfully, shockingly beautiful she had been in that moment, surrounded by death, silhouetted and seeming to hover on the air like a strange forgotten goddess, covered in blood and feathers, somehow freer than she had ever been. How I had wanted to go to her. But there was something even more ancient than love that held me back. Outside the house, watching the birds dance around her, I was jolted back to reality by a crashing sound. A small bird was sitting on the hood of the car. It'd run into the windshield and it seemed hurt, limping slightly and fluttering its wings. I paused for only a moment, then grabbed some napkins and a small box and jumped out to grab the small feathered thing. It chirped at me, but it didn't resist. The other birds didn't even seem to notice us. I started the car, deciding to take it to the vet. A cloud of black smoke began to billow up over a nearby house, and sirens wailed in the distance. I looked back at the window I'd last seen Sin standing in. She had her hand on the window, finally looking at me. We stared at each other through the smoky gray glass. Slowly, the shadows of birds enveloped her. She disappeared from my sight, and she was gone to me forever. In all the ways that mattered, she was gone. Baby, I whispered one final time, and I drove away. The time has come to lay this lonely satellite to rest. 
The Realm Network presents Graveyard Orbit, a part of the Decoded Horror Channel and an Okie Dokie LLC production with Queer Spec Publishing. Graveyard Orbit is produced by Sarah Century. Sound engineering is provided by Nathaniel Hubbard, creator of the podcast Tighten Up the Defense, and a writer for Garden Plus with Skeletor. Musical assistance for the series has been provided by Kate Warner, Katie Taylor, and Sarah Century. Any additional music attribution will be in the show notes. Thanks to S.E. Fleenor as publisher and editorial director at Queer Spec, Monica Estrella Negra as decoded editor, Priya Sixena for copy editing and marketing support, and Maria Violante for web support. Episode art is by Sarah Century. Please visit queerspec.com or decodedpride.com for more details on the episode and the people who bring you this podcast, as well as merch and links to other Queer Spec projects. To show further support for the podcast, follow us on Patreon at patreon.com slash queerspec. All Decoded Horror Stories belong to their respective writers. This podcast, all voice recordings, transcripts, and any portion thereof may not be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher, except for the brief use of quotations and reviews. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.